Hello and welcome to National Review's Capital Record. I am your host, David Bonson, and I am uh, here to tell you we're in the month of December. Uh, at the very end of 2023, what a year it has been. Um, a lot of fun here in this podcast as we've worked our way through our third year. And I believe that we have some great uh, episodes ahead, uh, but one of them uh, is going to be today's. And that's where I'm going to be bringing on here in a moment, Richard Reinch of the American Institute for Economic Research. Richard uh, was formerly with the Heritage Foundation. He's written for National Review uh, quite a bit. He's written at Acton um, and and most, uh, I think, probably heavily been uh, as the founder, senior writer at Law and Liberty, um, which is a really, really uh, instrumental journal in, in doing much of what we're trying to do uh, here at National Review's Capital Record, defend this concept of a free and virtuous society. Um, Richard's a wonderful thinker, wonderful writer, and I think uh, if you hear his story and, and the things we're going to talk about, you'll see why this voice is so important when uh, it comes to dealing with the current debate around the role of markets in a free society and the role of public policy in markets. And Richard's one of the good guys on this subject, as are so many of the people we have on Capital Record. And I want to bring him on now for us to just riff for a bit around um, the, this whole entire debate. So with that said, allow me to welcome to National Review's Capital Record a first-time guest, but someone I am so thrilled to have with us uh, leading uh, the fight against the things that we care about here at Capital Record and ready to have a great conversation with me on all these wonderful topics, Richard Reich. Richard, welcome to National Review's Capital Record. David, uh, thank you so much for having me on. This is great. So um, I guess we'll start off by letting you kind of tell listeners a little bit uh, uh, about yourself. I, when I first met you, you were still in the employee at um, the Heritage Foundation. You have since moved um, to AIER, but, but just maybe even going back a little further, tell, tell us uh, a little bit about yourself. Yeah, well, um, I'm a trained lawyer. I spent uh, a few years as a mergers and acquisitions and securities attorney. I moved from there to a great foundation, Liberty Fund, uh, where I worked for a number of years. And I, I founded the website Law and Liberty that I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners read from time to time and also the podcast Liberty Law Talk. And I did that for a number of years, um, I think, uh, with a lot of great help, made it a success and a, a great voice a uh, classical liberal voice for constitutionalism, uh, for the rule uh, under and through law, and uh, also for civil society and the sort of the necessary cultural forms and inputs needed to maintain a free society. Uh, I joined the Heritage Foundation at the beginning of 2022, and I was the director of the Simon Center there, where I um, worked with academics a lot and trying to publish papers and run great conferences as well as do my own writing. And, and currently I'm a, I'm a senior writer uh, for Law and Liberty. I also write for National Review. Uh, I write for the Acton Institute's Religion and Liberty, their, their great journal, and, and also uh, for national affairs from time to time. But at, at the American Institute for Economic Research, you know, we are a growing foundation uh, and we are dedicating to getting free markets right and all of the elements of that 
we are trying to defend and articulate from attacks from the left and now, unfortunately, from kind of this right progressivism, as Stephanie Slade calls it. Well, um, hopefully you're, you're familiar enough with, uh, with National Review and, and, and what we do here at Kappa Record to know that we're kindred spirits in, in that regard. And Stephanie Slade is one of the, the good ones in this capacity as well. I love that term about right-wing progressivism. Um, do you think, I, I know it's been a subject of a lot of your writing. Um, it's been a subject of a lot of my writing and speaking. Stephanie's done great work. There, there's a handful of folks, per, many of which have, have been here on this podcast, that stand up as some form of resistance to this movement. I wonder if you think that the movement's real and serious and that we're right to be concerned. Do you think it's a fad? Um, how, what is your worry meter about uh, the so-called new right? Well, I, th- I think the, uh, thinking about this, there is um, sort of a philosophical core here that I, I think is troubling, and that is populism as an ideology. Populism um, both is not a privilege of the right, it's not a privilege of the left. It's, in a sense, a way of counting winners and losers, telling one group they've been losers because of an in-group dominating them, using institutions to profit at their expense. And I am your champion. I am going to represent you against them. And you end up, I mean, it's, it's almost like you take away any notion of moral failure or original sin or anything like that from a, a certain class of people. And you say, you are all good. You, you've just been wronged. And I think that resentment, that stoking of resentment and that stoking of things that have been done to you unleashes all manner of appetites and passions. And it gives you sort of this unlimited politics of politics as war, of setting people against one another. That's what I think is really, really dangerous. And so when we look at, if you want to call it the, the conservative movement, as it, as it exists currently, um, you know, I think I see myself as part of you know, a group of people trying to rearticulate that, you know, American conservatism stands or falls on the basis of our constitutional order and the sort of economics, civil society, citizenship that are required to uphold it and to protect it and and perpetuate it. And, you know, unfortunately, we're sort of, uh, I won't say drowned out, but it's, it's increasingly you are competing with, and in some cases, very rightful claims of things done by Certain, certain uh, elites or arguments taken too far or the way in which they've used the judiciary, the administrative state to do certain things, but nevertheless insisting that everything that's happening in the country is sort of a conspiracy against the people, the good people uh, who can do no wrong. And that to me is that resentment factor and sort of like I'm not really trying to conserve a constitutional order, but I'm trying to put the right people in place. That's worrisome to me. And I don't see any end of that soon. And I think that also explains why no matter what, say, a figure like Donald Trump does or certain other figures around him who support him, the, the, that support doesn't, doesn't flail. That says to me, this is it's a staying power. Well, um, I guess I, my question would be if you think that that was something that everybody currently in the new right has also said and believed and known when talking about the left until now. 
in, in other words, that concern about stoking envy and resentment and, and having this sort of, um, whether it's class envy or, or whatnot, uh, a general um, ideology rooted in, in various resentments mm -hmm. that carry over into one's economic worldview it seems to me that what you're saying about the new right is exactly correct, but that the new right itself used to know this when, when the people we were talking about were different. No, I, I think that is undoubtedly the case. It's a, a if we think about the politics of, of the left historically um, go in this country, going back to Theodore Roosevelt, even great, or, or FDR, FDR's famous phrase, the malefactors of wealth, or his, his you know, famous suggestion that the business class represented almost a return or a rise of a Republican and fascist class uh, in a speech, that sort of stoking uh, of, of passions. And so it seems to me this is the idea that, well, politics must be about that. That's the correct way to do politics and we're getting beat because we don't match the left stride for stride. And it's it's not a coincidence that this sort of emerged at the end of Barack Obama's presidency, which was very much um, uh, a, a use of the federal government to go after enemies or to act unconstitutionally to achieve certain political objectives. We all watched this and, and we were angered by it. And we were angered by you know the failure of Mitt Romney in the 2012 his 2012 campaign to stop things, which I think is really the, uh, and in many ways, the starting point for the trajectory that we're on. And, uh, and so now it's, well, we have to be like, you know, so it's not, it's not a coincidence that you see certain thinkers, European thinkers emerge and sort of the new right pantheon. It's not the founders. In fact, they tell us the conservative movement has wasted a lot of time by focusing on the founders. What we need to focus on is clear lines of division between uh, friends and enemies and trying to use the power of the federal government to create an economy and a civil society that will support their idea of a, of a social and political order and to get away, to get away from sort of the restraints. And so you think about, I think about my mentor, Peter Lawler, the late Peter Lawler, he always had this idea of, you know, we should be constitutional in our politics. How are you going to be constitutional. And that should be uh, how you enter into the public square. And uh, that is, that is, seems to me, it's not at all the case we're doing that now. And so um, in, in terms of the general lay of the land, the uh, thing I've noticed, it's of particular interest to this podcast and kind of my mission to defend capital markets as a means to the end that I really care about, which is this the overall concept of a free and virtuous society. Um, it seems that capital markets represent a really easy foil if they are going down the path you and I suggest they are of um, more class envy driven uh, resentment stoking approach because those in finance are almost inevitably going to be in one side versus the other of the class divide. And so you have an embedded um, kind of resentment just in terms of a, a, a general socioeconomic positioning. And then there is uh, coupled to that 
um, the assumption, the reasonably accurate assumption of societal ignorance or confusion about what finance does, what financial institutions do, how the plumbing of financial systems work. And, and so you, you get the convenience of, of reasonably bipartisan um, support for poking at various terms that have become boogeymen for this cause. Goldman Sachs is a nice little easy target. Private equity has become the new profanity of the of this this idea. Wall Street, of course, has always been very easy target for demonization. And um, I work really, really hard to never give the impression, unless someone's going to falsely represent me, which they're more than able to do, um, that my defense is not for Wall Street, Goldman, and private equity, because I go to bed at night feeling sorry for very wealthy and successful people, but rather that I think we are really biting off our nose to spite our face to make capital markets the, the target of our ire um, when, in fact, they are a necessary component to enhancing quality of life and a necessary component for lubricating a free enterprise system. Do you believe that... Um, Capital markets represent a sort of tactical target of the new right, or is there something philosophical at play that's worth unpacking? Well, I, I think too. I mean, and you know, not and, and as I say, resentment um, covers a lot of right progressivism. It's it's not as if they aren't you know on to something or rightly concerned about certain things like ESG and the ways in which major financial players. Larry Fink being the most obvious, but it, you know it, when you look around at all of the major banks, they seem to sing to this tune of subordinating financial markets to to the concerns of, of ESG, or at least being willing to do that, even if it's they find all sorts of ways to not actually own up to that to the rhetoric. Um, and also the, the 2008 financial crisis. You know, I, I just reviewed Marco Rubio's book, Decades of Decadence. Uh, he and he's perfectly willing to attribute the entire crisis and fallout to major banks in this country without mentioning the ways in which the government was also, as you know, heavily involved in multiple, multiple ways to help precipitate that crisis. Uh, so it's, it's, there is a problem there. And, and I think if you think about this term like financialization, which I still struggle to actually define, I think I know what they're talking about, but this, that somehow what you do or what most of what, what most people are doing in Wall Street doesn't actually contribute to the growth in the real economy. It's just uh, you know making wealthy financial people even wealthier, often at the expense they say of Main Street, and or, or things like the share buyback phenomenon. There's, there's this constant criticism of share buybacks as being a purely wasteful exercise just to enrich people at the expense of worker incomes. Uh, you know, things like that. But I, I guess I, I come back to something that Frank Meyer said, which is we want to defend a free economy, not only for the good that it does for the people participating in it, but a free economy is sort of a condition to having uh, an, an overall free society, which allows you to actually do good things in your life. And that freedom is what allows you to find what you think is true for your life and, and live that out. That's what's really is at stake here with, 
with economic freedom and political freedom. It's not the ability to force one standard on, uh, on everyone else and to use the economy of all things as a way to do that, which is what I see happening. And all these sorts of statistical claims that you and I, you know, a lot of people have sort of blown out of the water, but yet they never really go away, whether it's manufacturing, inequality, bringing back labor unions, uh, uh, China, all of China is like sucking away manufacturing jobs, yet not taking into account all of the new jobs we've created. All of this sort of plays into this mix here. Well, you know, I think that all people of good faith and goodwill that are engaged in intellectual discovery and academic research can make mistakes or can, or can move from a premise to a conclusion wrongly, misread data. Um, and, and, and so I don't want to be overly critical of it, but when you talk about them doing it with manufacturing and when um, I hear some of them uh, purposely misread Adam Smith repeatedly after being corrected on what he actually said and, and contextualized uh, form. Um, and when I see these various data points, whether it be in manufacturing, labor, finance, it really does leave you with no other conclusion, but that it was a gnat in search of a windshield. And, and I don't think academic integrity starts with the conclusion and then looks to go find premises to support it. And yet, the when coming back to this "quote unquote" financialization side, your your point on manufacturing, and you brought that up in your recent uh, review of Marco Rubio's new book, um, that that I think does represent a big surprise to a lot of people. What the real manufacturing data is, the productivity argument. I think in some cases they view it as a bug, not a feature. Like we're supposed to be really concerned if we're getting more productivity from less labor. And, and that's a pretty hard pill for me to swallow if I value economic growth. But, you know, if, if you're starting off with the premise that someone's out there trying to get you, um, you know, I'm open to the idea that a lot of the people that haven't really studied the Fed, haven't really studied sovereign indebtedness, haven't studied some of the failures of um, excessive fiscal and Keynesian interventions, but they do know that there was some period of time about 20-something years ago that China entered WTO. And they do know that in that period of time, there's been certain economic data points that have gone down for working class Americans. I, I'm not going to fault someone for innocently stepping into a post-talk fallacy. But the thing with financialization, I don't think is innocent. I think it is just the easiest target in the world it is going to generate sympathy from left, right, and middle. And I also believe that even the financial crisis, it didn't become the point at which there was some sort of prima facie support. Their method of interpreting the financial crisis was driven by this gnat in search of a windshield as well. Even that is convenient. I've never in my life seen a situation where big, rich banks lend a bunch of money to people. People don't pay it back. And the bank is the bad guy. Now, yeah. there's so much else that went on, yeah. uh, the leverage and, and, and um, other uh, events that were massive sins of Wall Street that, committed, that, that contributed mm -hmm. to the systemic risk of financial crisis. But again, my, my point being um, the, the very term financialization and the notion that there are people out moving uh, – things along on a, a chessboard just to catch some profit for them, but doing no contribution to society. 
I just have a very hard time believing some of these people actually believe it. It, it is at a level of absurdity that makes mm-hmm. no sense to me. Well, but I, I think, you know, too, when, when you look back to the debate uh, over two decades ago about China joining the WTO, you know, the, the attribution of motive that, you know, somehow this was a way that elites were going to play sort of a con game and, and get, get rich at the expense of industrial workers. I mean, that, that wasn't the debate. Uh, the, the debate was you had this growing country, a powerful country uh, that had, you know, ten, certain tendencies. And you thought if you brought them into a rules-based order, things would go better overall. That was that was sort of you know was that true or was it not true? That was sort of the debate, really. And you know, it turns out you know about a decade and a half later that China wasn't really entering into or or, or had had played it both ways and seemed to have an economy that was becoming even more authoritarian and doing a lot of illegal things uh, with regard to international investors, international businesses located within the country. And we were starting to wise up to that. I mean, that was sort of the great thing about the, the Trans-Pacific Partnership. It was, it was a way to move capital and jobs out of China into other Asian nations, build goodwill with them. Uh, has China seemed to become becoming increasingly militaristic? We had a great policy in place to deal with China that is now seemingly gone at, at the hands of both political parties, owing to sort of a populist narrative about, you know, these manufacturing jobs. And it just... It seems to me there's like there's a willful refusal just to do a cost benefit analysis or sort of a balancing and a weighing of all the ways in which we've benefited globally from trade, which is to take nothing away from there may be national there are national security exceptions to trade, uh, but you've got to be able to define that coherently and concretely so that doesn't become its own source of, of waste, fraud, and abuse within government policy. And so I. I look at this as, you know, it's, it's when, I, when I look at these claims about uh, uh, manufacturing and trade and, and tariffs will correct things, and we need to bring back private sector labor unions, you see a lot of conservatives strangely abandoning even the Taft-Hartley Act on unions. Um, it, it sort of just, it makes me scratch my head because it's like the data is just there for the taking, and it's sort of a political will it's a power move uh, that seems to be happening, and it's it's very difficult to, to stop that, other than just to kind of you know be your own to, to champion the right things. Well, I I think yourself being um, a, a think tanker and a writer and and having strong ideological convictions here, your your biggest form of influence is in trying to move the intellectual debate, and and I think that our side is going to win this debate. But when you look at like Marco Rubio's new book, for example, um, are, is the debate? Are we right now just engaged in a debate with the new right, or are, do you think they're making progress um, in the policy sphere? I, I I wonder about this because I've seen a lot of them brag about the Chips Act, and that was a real left wing bill. I just don't believe that the Chips Act was a byproduct of new rightism. And ultimately right now um, it took about five minutes for the chips act to really be understood as just a new woke and, and ESG and, and DEI and, and, you know, a typical just kind of flavor of the month, cultural yeah. embarrassment. Um, well, but are there things 
in the in the Rubio book, the stuff that comes from Josh Hawley's desk, mm-hmm. uh, things that Orrin Cass has been trying to promote for, as a policy uh, portfolio for the new right for some time. Do you, do you think any of it is serious? Well, I, I think there's good news and there's bad news. I mean, there, there's a, a great piece by a political scientist, George Hawley, at, at our, our website, the, the Fusion AIER website, you know, basically saying that the Republican electorate you know, other than regards to trade and, uh, you know, much more restrictive thinking about the use of military force. Uh, but the, the Republican electorate really hasn't changed that much. It's It still wants a, a broad array of, of economic freedom. It wants smaller government. Um, there, you know, and there's, there's still that there's um, a reluctance to really think about entitlement spending, but that's been true for a long time. Uh, so I think, I think that's, that's the good news. I think, but, you know, elites supply information and ideas to people and, and have a way of reorienting what uh, what people think over time. So I think that would that would be my concern is, is they keep they keep plugging away. And, you know, in the CHIPS Act, you know, you, you had um, a not insignificant number of Republican senators vote for that act. And what they cited was national security a national security as a grab bag to justify their vote. And, and then you've got a chip-making facility in Arizona that, you know, the CEO of Taiwan Semiconductor said costs twice as much to make chips in Arizona as it does in Taiwan. Um, and you say, well, national security, China could invade Taiwan. Yeah, but there's a lot of nations you could reshore that supply to. Uh, so it, 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 it kind of lives on and goes on in, in strange ways. Um, my, my sense is, you know, right now the, the biggest, the, the ongoing danger is, you know, Biden built on Trump's success, uh, relative political success, I'll say, on on the tariff matter. And he, and he really built on that to get the CHIPS Act, uh, which was also supported by a, a not insignificant number of Republicans. So could they extend that uh, in, in various ways? So you see them probing like Josh Hawley uh, wants to move against uh, the Citizens United Supreme Court decision. So that involves moving against the idea of corporate personhood, which has been in our law since the American founding. But that's that's a progressive idea. Things like that. Um, you know, you see certain senators uh, like like Vance and others, there's usually three or four that are trying to advance Rubio, another one trying to advance ways of private sector labor unions. Um, the economy seems to have moved against that decisively over the, you know, the past few decades. Uh, but there it is. There's there's enormous ways that mischief can arise again. So when you look at some of the things that they've floated on the policy front, some have been more substantial than others. And to your point, some might have more um, pull with the public than others. One one thing I'll use is just sort of an example. I think unpack some of the the fallacies and the thinking, <clears throat> but uh, does uh, very much lend itself to a prima facie sympathy for some people. Um, public companies having a mandate to put a uh, quote-unquote worker um, on the board. Um, And I guess I would sort of say any various board mandates at all um, that that require disinterested third parties to dictate what the board composition would be as opposed to shareholders who are the owners of a business – but what do you see as the flaw if somebody were to come to you and say, oh, come on, how could it be a bad thing to have a, a worker not for management on the board 
um, that represents, you know, sort of the rank and file of the company. What, what do you see as a, um, a problem with that mandate? Well, it's one, I mean, once you've established the principle um, of, of the government uh, telling you who you have to put on your board, or, you know, with the case of uh, NASDAQ, I think mandating, you know, someone from a you know, diverse community has to be on your board. So right away, you're, you're chipping away at, if not trying to eliminate what's been in our corporate law uh, from the beginning, which is, you know, shareholder capitalism. You're, you're trying to bring back or, or insert into our law that this notion that corporations really have to be responsive to collectivities or to groups uh, out there, and you know, the constituencies are limitless. Seemingly, I mean, that's one uh, problem: stakeholder capitalism. So you're you're trying to institute that. That's what I would see as the ultimate, the the, the Trojan horse, the stalking, the, the the great problem there. And it it really doesn't end. And then the goal then is to ultimately arrest corporate growth and tie it to sort of these nebulous national. Uh, uh, collective goals instead of entrepreneurial capitalism, where profit itself. I mean, I love. I lived in Indiana for a number of years uh, when Mitch Daniels was the governor. I remember he, he was asked by businesses in Indiana, "What what can we do for the people? How can we give back?" And and he kind of reversed the question and said, "What do you, what do you mean give back? Be profitable, and you'll be doing everything you can do. You'll be helping your employees live well in the communities that they're in." That has to be enough, and it also has to be that profit itself and the, and the required business uh, strategies and tactics to achieve that profit are themselves morally good. So I think we have a lot of people involved in business who don't actually understand or think or really believe that what they're doing on a daily basis is good in itself. What do you think? Well, and I, I agree completely. I think that there it's one of the reasons why I think, uh, you know, reteaching economics with certain foundational principles is, is so important to me. I'm very, I'm very critical of the right that we're in this position to begin with because I think that we uh, ourselves relied on an efficiency argument and a Randian anthropology that I think was wholly inadequate to fully um, – defend and promote the legacy of Smith, the legacy of Hayek. I think that the evolution of classical economics um, into the 20th century um, required us to maintain uh, uh, certain moral principles and foundational understandings philosophically that would not um, be coupled to a defense of free markets and not be tangential to how we sprinkle uh, on top a little goodness to the case for markets, but would rather be integral. And yet what I believe happened is we didn't do it. Things were going well. Um, and particularly post-war, um, we got, I think, lazy intellectually because who amongst us was going to speak against markets after the 1970s, the Reagan years, the Clinton years, it was just so easy. Mm -hmm. And so I believe that we got caught um, a little flat-footed after financial crisis, but not because we were wrong on arguments, but because we relied on an easier and cheaper argument that also probably lent itself to more support. Mm -hmm. There will be many um, people in a free market coalition uh, that are not willing to defend markets outside of a sort of secular rationalism or, or, mm -hmm. or yeah. humanism. And, and so we, it, it was a bigger tent 
to not have to appeal to, to certain anthropological truths. And yet, ultimately, I think we lose the argument when we don't, I think, and, and, and we'll continue to do so. So I, I'm pretty conscientious of the fact that my allies in this cause and my real agenda is not merely the word capitalism or not merely freedom of exchange, um, but a more holistic set of, of truth claims that I think lend themselves to the most vigorous defense of markets. And, and, mm -hmm. and right now, um, I think that there's a very, it's very difficult for me to unpack what's going on because you brought up a point a moment ago when the CHIPS Act starts off being defended as somewhat protectionist and then they switch to a, a national security argument. I view that as a sign of weakness in their argument. If I have the right argument economically, I can stick to my argument. I don't need to do a bait and switch. Now, the national security argument could be a good one or a bad one, but it isn't the same one. Yeah. It's it's a different argument. And and people um you know imagine if you went to court and said my client didn't do it and also he had every right to do it. You know, <laughs> which one which one is it, right? And and I think that, that sometimes that seems to be what's going on is that there's various bait and switches happening. Well, and you know, you think about you know one of the more sophisticated arguments for manufacturing chips. You know, according to say you know Michael Dell, uh, and you, you see this amplified in um, uh, you know David Goldman, a, you know sophisticated defender of industrial policy, uh, that somehow you know where we we excel, where uh, at least in, in, in American companies excel is in the design and the creativity, but the chip manufacturing is in our comparative advantage. And then, you know, the, these voices have come along and said, well, but you will lose the ability over time to do the design well if you're not making the chips because almost like in a Hayekian learning local knowledge process, it's in chip making that advances in design come about. But of course, if, if you really believe that, um, then you, you know, you wouldn't be, you know, shipping things overseas as much as you do. And you would want to keep them here because it's essential to your profit line or some form of it is essential to your, your, your bottom line. And you wouldn't need the government to sort of backstop you and, and guarantee it. And that's sort of the opposite of what I saw in the chip making act. You're actually wanting the government to sort of guarantee you everything on the manufacturing side, almost as if it's to say it isn't an efficient use of resources. But I also think I, th I yeah. think it's got to be one or the other, and then and yeah. in both cases they lose because um, I, there's no question that before the Chips Act had any uh, nomenclature associated with it, let alone legislative path to victory, uh, there may have been embryonic discussions, but um, no, no more than that. Intel was already taking huge steps towards uh, onshoring some of the manufacturing activity. And, and perhaps a lot of it was the notion that there were Hayekian business advantages in um, not allowing the design and the, and the fab manufacturing to become totally separated. What, but basically, either it was something that they were going to do for market reasons on their own and therefore did not need corporate welfare, or it wasn't a positive market activity. And so we have to revisit those claims and assumptions we yeah. were told. But it can't be both. Yeah, no, I, I think that's I think that's right, and um, so it's it's it you know as as I'm thinking about industrial policy and like you know the academic research and 
you know, what is an what is industrial policy? And it, it seems to me it's 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 very difficult to define. And it's sort of once you have accepted the logic that the government should be a prime player in economic growth for for various for all of these various reasons, it becomes very difficult then to, to step back and limit it. And you know, the, the prime example here is Japan and you know their their vaunted uh, the acronym was MIDI in the 70s and 80s that so many uh, of our corporate elites said we needed to follow uh, for for what their industrial policy was doing for their economy. But when they did their autopsy report on their industrial policy, you know they famously said we thought this was the source of our success. We came to learn it was the source of our failure and what it did to our companies for their international competitiveness. And, and they also found there were Japanese companies engaged in international commerce that did not receive benefits from industrial policy. They actually performed better over time. And so there's there uh, once you are accepting this logic and uh, uh, and engaged in this sort of stuff, you kind of move also into the realm of of corporatism, uh, which mm-hmm. corporatism is is a, is a part of every fascist economy. Um, and so not every not every corporatist is a fascist. I'm not saying that, but every fascist is a corporatist. Yeah. And you start moving into this idea of the public and private partnerships that are pervasive throughout your economy, and you, it just you just really could you start to eliminate any idea of a separation between between civil society and government, the economy within civil society, and it's uh, it, it's sort of like and the next thing you know, uh, you, you don't really have control over your economy anymore. It's 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 public directed. That's my ultimate fear. And you could say that's an exaggeration. But once you lay down principles, things start to unfold logically. Yeah. And so um, where does uh, civil society play in into your vision for an economy? Do you believe that met much of what the new right wants in terms of uh, administration of economic activity, yeah. that if we had a stronger civil society, it would mitigate some of their own yeah. ambitions? Well, I think, you know, in, in reviewing the Rubio book, and it's it's sort of consistent with something you see articulated by an American Compass. You know, Ru- Rubio's book was interesting to me in this regard because it wasn't it wasn't sort of the intense uh, social conservatism of old. Um, it, 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 you know, and, and what I mean by that is sort of trying to make arguments about um, uh, the sexual revolution or, or that sort of turning that back. It's it's sort of this like, well, we could actually use the economy. Uh, to reforge sort of a, a Tocquevillian America, which is inevitably a socially conservative America, families, religion, neighborhoods. I like that. I believe that. I think that those things are all essential to human flourishing. I don't think you're going to put it back together with using the government uh, to have, you know, and, and Rubio does, Rubio kind of alludes to this one income family structures again, um, uh, or, you know, we're going to revitalize and then have a very stable sector of middle class work in the manufacturing sector. And all of these things will start to make family life predictable and people will start to do it again. And we'll have more births and all of this sort of stuff. And that's that to me is um, one that would be incredibly wasteful and it will, uh, will go against the grain of a lot of choices that a lot of families have made about how they're going to structure their work and incomes um, but that, that's the, sort of the thinking there. And so in that sense, civil society becomes sort of swallowed up by, by government policy. Whereas I, you know, I would think, you know, we definitely want to have families treated on an even basis with individuals regarding tax policy. 
Um, we want to have, uh, uh, we don't want to disfavor a family in any way. We also want to disfavor the things that families need within civil society uh, to grow and prosper. But what we, what to the extent the economy interacts with family life, it's we want robust economic growth. I think that that's the best thing, and and that comes from thinking economically, not swallowing up the economy by saying it has to serve the family, and we're going to put a lot of regulations on it to make sure that happens. I think that's a loser. Yeah, I I wish that my critique of that thinking um, that the uh, government can play this role to help drive that family recovery or various traditionalist values. I wish it was that I just simply thought it wouldn't prevail or wouldn't succeed. But I, I do think in addition to not prevailing and not succeeding, I think it would be counterproductive. I yeah. think it would do a lot of great damage. And um, that that and in some cases, quite obviously so. Where do you stand, Richard, on some of the attempts to have family-friendly policies that are not so ambitious, mm-hmm. but maybe people um, like Yuval Levin, for example, that um, are you know there, there's easy stuff like school choice. Okay, mm-hmm. greater, oh, yeah. greater school choice, I think, is family-friendly, and it's an example of something that's in the policy realm that would help drive a better outcome. And that that part seems yeah. to me to be very non-controversial. But of course, as a matter of limiting principle. It's something the government's doing to remove an impediment, not create something. But what about um, tax benefits, the child tax credit, for example, things like that? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, you know, what, you know, and think about um, uh, the the child tax credit, you know, if, if you want to have something like, like the situation we have now uh, is, you know, uh, I, I wouldn't say uh, we don't have a generous child tax credit relative to what other Western nations have done. I, I always think, you know, uh, American Americans have never struggled to reproduce uh, or to have you know population growth until the last fifteen years. In the last twenty years, I mean, we, we've things have worked pretty well for us in that regard, and so I. I'm just I, I'm dubious of the notion that you know somehow that's going to be recreated for us or re-incentivized for us by government. Um, you know, my, my good friend Catherine Bacalik at Catholic University, an economist, there has a book that's about to come out where she looks at families from an array of backgrounds in this country who have large families, you know, more more than three, and you know what she finds is no one's really incentivized by anything the government does. It's really sort of their internal values and beliefs, uh, particular religious beliefs that lead them to have large families and all of the sacrifices that go along with that. So my thing with the child tax credit is I'm not I'm not going to engage in a jihad against that or anything, but I don't I doubt really the effectiveness of it. I think it rewards families who currently have children and may have one or two more. If, If we look at. Uh, countries that have very robust family uh, tax financial policies like Hungary, you know, they're spending a large percentage of their GDP a, a, uh, and it, it has barely moved the dial. And I think that's been the experience in most European countries that have tried this as well. It it doesn't really give you the population growth you think you need. You, you're probably going to have to think very deeply about a lot of decisions that people have made over the last 60 years. And those are, I think, really matters of, of heart 
and belief about what you think is a good life. It's interesting. When I think about the things that I believe have, have impacted the good life negatively, impacted mm. common good, impacted families and Tocquevillian vision of community, all of them are not um, a lack of public policy, but the existence of public policy, the intrusion of public policy that I think was incredibly misguided. And mm-hmm. so to the extent I think we yeah. can help move the needle in some positive way, it would be by removing certain public policy. And I look at um, one of the issues I think most people would say demographically, um, what it means culturally for people who have a particular religious bent as I do or value system. Um, I, I think that the decline of marriage and, and people getting married a lot later and therefore having less kids. I've had um, uh, Lyman Stone on the podcast. He does some incredible work about demographics. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think that you're exactly right. I don't think most people that are married say, hey, we were going to have three kids, but I just got the update in the Wall Street Journal on the child tax credit. And why don't we go ahead and do a fourth because we're going to get this other $2,000 credit or something. I think it is more of a reward than an incentive. And those are very different understandings in economics. But yes. I think that um, student loan debt um, exploding I think that what they've done to manipulate housing prices higher by heavy by making the government the marginal lender through Fannie Freddie and controlling the cost of capital to preposterous levels outside of market price discovery. I think that making housing unaffordable and student loan debt a burden on people throughout their 20s and into their 30s, I think that's done more to damage family formation mm-hmm. than anything yes. they could possibly do would help it. Yeah, no, I, I agree completely. And, you know, that's, you know, uh, you know, something like moving away from this sort of this endless credentialing process in our economy would be a, a very positive thing for a lot of reasons. And I think it's also about, you know, what, what, your, what your critique also gets at is, you know, the best we can do for human flourishing when it comes to the political system. Uh, I think it, I think Frank Meyer remains correct on this. And that's freedom is sown in the nature of man. And we want to protect that and nurture that. That's about as high as it gets for government in terms of sort of a a spiritual moral quality is freedom is sown in the nature of man. And you want to, you want to create the conditions for that to flourish. Um, So that's that, that, that if we, if we do that, uh, then we're on a much better footing than if we are really trying to manage and actively intervene in the social voluntary actions of, of people and, and force them into uh, what, what are good situations, but in the forcing them into the good situations, you create all manner of unintended consequences interacting with self-interest that could lead you far away from that end. When Patricia tried to donate to a conservative organization through her donor-advised fund, her request was denied. Why? Because they said she was trying to give to a hate group. That's why she switched to Waterstone, a donor-advised fund dedicated to upholding Judeo-Christian values. Waterstone is unique in the world of donor-advised funds. It accepts gifts of cash as well as real estate, business interest, oil, and more. They can help you receive an immediate tax deduction and make a difference for the charity of your choosing. With its charitable pooled trust, you can even generate a guaranteed income stream from your charitable giving. Waterstone strictly adheres to a Christian statement of faith, including a pro-life declaration, does not give to charities that contradict those values. 
Waterstone is trusted by so many men and women of conviction that they give $10 million per month in charitable grants. They can work with you or your financial advisor to make a giving strategy that fits your needs. Contact Waterstone's Giving Strategies team today for more information by visiting waterstone.org. That's waterstone.org. Well, let's do this with our remaining few minutes. I think uh, a little... um uh, not not rapid fire or anything like that, not game showy, but just a couple of real life issues that do do come up. Um, and I think you and I both try to be real practical about this, recognize where there is a little bit of, of understandable uh, uh, concern that comes up at times, but unfortunately gets gets uh, misdiagnosed or or whatnot. What, what when you look at the world of big tech, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think that federal government intrusions as to rules about teenage use of iPhones is a good idea? I mean, my, I mean, my sense is uh, these devices are easy to, to regulate by parents uh, yeah. and, and can easily be done. So, uh, and I, I, it's something that I am, I am concerned about uh, uh, in the sense of what, you know, when you're around young people or when you see them together, they don't talk and interact the way we did when I was their age, they're out, they're on their phones. But so when you, you see, say easy, you mean technologically easy. Te- technologically. I mean, I, yeah. you know, control, yeah. you can, you can easily control your child's screen time and you can, yeah. you can turn the thing off yeah. through, through your own interactive controls. That's right. Um, I'm not, you know, it does, it doesn't, you know, if, if we limit teenage access you know, my, my sense is, you know, the mechanism for doing that um, is um, probably vastly imperfect. I don't know that it, it's going to change things that much versus just parents doing what's what's absolutely needed. Um, yeah. and my sense is it'll just be circumvented anyway. It's it's One really a question. Other. And it's also a question of like, just like these schools, you're seeing, you know, a lot you know, private schools don't allow them in the doors usually. Uh, or the kids have to keep them in their backpacks. You know, the, the public schools don't, but yet you see certain public schools start to go back to, wow, these things are really destructive uh, in the schools. So I think that also is like, it's just a question of authority within society right now overall. And that's something we haven't talked about. That's running through all these debates is just the lack of trust uh, that people have in institutions and leadership to do to do the right thing. And the leaders of those institutions either acting ideologically or incompetently. Yeah. Um, so back to your point earlier about civil society, that we we have um, a huge obligation to see these mediating institutions uh, act competently, and, and we need greater trust in their competence, but also in their, in their good intention. Um, it, it's funny, though, exactly what you just identified. I speak here both as a parent of teenagers and a someone who who started a uh, private Christian high school in Southern California, the technology is absolutely there for parents to have control. Mm-hmm. What's hard is that your kids get mad. That's yeah. what's hard. Yeah, you know the peer pressure with the kids and the rules and everything. But it isn't that hard technologically. And so when I hear Tucker Carlson talk about the need for a, a ban. And equating it to uh, teenage smoking and so forth, I think it does miss some of the point that the apparatus is there and we're choosing not to kind of leverage it. But you brought up the schools, and I think a lot of people don't know this. The schools can always have rules 
you got to leave your phone in your backpack or they can take the phone, make you leave it up front when you go into class mm -hmm. and then you can take it when you walk out. There are, some schools can ban them on campus altogether. Not that many do that, but there's all kinds of restrictions and rules schools can implement, public or private. But by the way, we just implemented this at our school this year. And it's expensive, and it took a lot of work to go through. But to Apple's credit, they've created an absolutely unbelievable option for classroom use of iPad for student-issued iPads that cannot get on the kids' personal apps that get through their own personal messaging, social media. Um, it's exclusively school-issued and, and it can all be regulated, monitored on a network with the school. It could be the property of the school, or they could make the parents and kids buy it. I mean, there's all kinds of optionality. But yeah, technology did what I think our friends on the new right were asking big government to do. Yeah. And, and it doesn't get discussed enough. Now, it doesn't mean it's all perfect and that implementation is going to be easy. But your your point between parental supervision and control and 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 involvement and even some of the options in the marketplace for schools, a lot of that stuff, there's solutions there that don't require our dear yeah. trusted friends in Washington, DC. Well, it's like you want to outsource parenting. Um, yeah. uh, almost. I mean, you could, you can set it if you are so inclined and I've seen it done. You can read your children's text messages. Sure. You can, you can control who they text. Uh, right. you, you, you've got to learn how to do it. But it's sort of like, you know, I uh, the Philadelphia Society meeting, I'm, I'm on the board of directors, sort of an intellectual debate society on the right. You know, I, I heard the, the editor of First Things magazine say, you know, you know we need to have blue laws uh, reimposed again. It didn't say nationally, uh, locally. Um, th th those should be considered again. We, sh we should have one day of the week and it should just be known we're not going to do any commerce that day or do anything like that. And as if somehow that's going to lead people back into religious institutions again. Uh, that, that, that's not the way, reason why people left religious institutions, but somehow we think that there, there's like the government can actually lead us back into high religious participation again. And I, and I see that analogous to this debate over control of, of technology of smartphones and then the government having control. It was just like, you know, you see a lot of very slippery analysis about antitrust and Silicon Valley companies where, it's sort of it's asserted rather than really argued legally and in political debate over the, over the antitrust doctrines themselves. And I think a lot of this is really motivated by things that happened during COVID and the ways in which some of these most of these companies enlisted on the left of culture wars. And, you know, my 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 sense is bringing the government in to regulate them will, will only boomerang back. And, and make things much worse uh, beyond what, what you were intending. So I, I don't think that's really the solution. The, the solution is, um, you know, ultimately, you know, something like what Elon Musk did, or, or you know, they're, they're, that's a competitive move by a market player, uh, among others, and also ensuring that the government, I mean, in this great court, federal court decision, the government was actively intervening in social media companies, ensuring that they can't do that. Uh, and, and, and shut things down that way. So there's, there's a lack of patience that a competitive open society will, will find ways to deal with political conflict in a way that doesn't leave people, you know, marginalized indefinitely. 
Our society is incredibly dynamic. Our politics is dynamic. And, you know, people are going to move around based on where they see threats emerging from, just like, you know, you start to see increasing numbers of, uh, you know, so-called you know, Latino voters being willing to entertain the Republican Party. There, there's all sorts of reasons for that. And that's, that's the outcome of that kind of a politics in an open system. And we should have confidence in that and protect the rules and forms and procedures around that instead of seeking to use the government to get sort of a substantive cultural outcome. Well, and I think that uh, dynamism ought to be the the natural, organic, and spontaneous reality, and not something that we consciously resist and and yeah. resent. And and what we've really done is begrudge a lot of things. This is particularly true in labor. We begrudged a lot of things that dynamism would solve for, and then we propose things that take away more dynamism. And, and I, you know, it's the one I was going to ask you about next, but we, we kind of spent more time in that parental issue, um, automated driving, um, mm-hmm. automated truck driving. Do you feel that, uh, the government is needed to gen to whether in any form of technology, this, this plays in artificial intelligence, automation, digitization, but because truck drivers are generally thought of as that kind of, you know, blue collar, working class, a, a pretty good paying job for people who don't need a college degree and that they're under threat by automation. Do you think government policy is needed uh, in, in the creative destruction of what could happen in those in those various venues? Um, well, uh, my, my short answer is, is no. I, I don't doubt there won't be there would be short term disruptions. But the creative possibilities there, we don't know. Uh, but my, my sense is uh, they emerge, new jobs that we haven't even thought of will emerge from this process of creative destruction. And, you know, we can move people around in, in much better ways. Um, with the, the short, there'll be short-term consequences. I, I have no doubt about that. It's also going to be something that I think doesn't just happen. Uh, you know, it's it's going to unfold over time. Uh, and the, the best thing that we can do is actually not interfere and see how the government, uh, how these companies actually implement the technology um, and use it. I mean, my sense is it may be like flying a plane, right? It goes on autopilot 90% of the trip, but you need the pilots and their skill to take off and land it. You're probably, you know, you couldn't still need something like that for a lot of uh, intricate, you know, local driving, uh, but the long term, you can put it on autopilot. But, you know, that's that's sort of that that process unfolding uh, is, I think, generally going to be a positive one over time. And usually new technology. I mean, it's just like, you know, we think about, uh, you know, I remember the first time I went uh, to an ATM with my parents. You know, I was, I was a little kid and everybody thought those were going to destroy all the jobs inside banks. And it actually ended up creating more jobs and allowed banks to better serve the financial needs of their customers with, you know, tailored personnel in the lobby uh, for, for things like loans or something like that, that, that people don't, people don't think about that next step process. And the same thing's true. as like something like grocery stores or any number of places. Those are the more visible ones that people see and think about, but that, that would be my answer. Well, I'm with you hundred percent. I think it's a great answer. And I think that we have this uh, massive historical lesson out of the industrial revolution that we just have a large constituency of people that don't want to apply it to the digital revolution. 
And yet we're already 50 years in and we've already seen exponentially more jobs created than lost. And yet um, there's this sort of snarky rebut, you know, I don't like people ever just in terms of my own personal etiquette to say to someone who lost their job, learn to code. I think it sounds like a pretty insensitive thing to say, but I don't know that I've ever heard anyone really say that. Um, But it's become this sort of meme around how people who advocate for creative destruction, labor dynamism, Mm. uh, economic spontaneity, that supposedly it's how people like us feel that we're just crassly telling some, you know, uh, blue collar worker in Ohio to learn to code where in reality, I think what you just said is very important. Um, there's a big kind of, you know, broken window fallacy going on. I mean, there's invisible opportunities that we're keep, we're making them stay invisible by not encouraging the, the spontaneity and, and ultimately dynamism to play out. And I, I think, by the way, that specific example, you're exactly right. I, uh, I encourage anyone who believes that there will one day be a driverless car delivering produce in New York City to walk around New York City a little bit and yeah. see how comfortable they're going to be with driverless trucks ever. Uh, yeah. I, I think that, yeah, getting the truck to, to go on Highway 95 for part of the time is one thing. But, but arriving to a point of destination, I think it's yeah. your airline analogy is very is very good. Well, you know, and I, I think, you know, something, um, you know, maybe somewhat deeper, uh, well, very deep, Alexander Solzhenitsyn, you know, he talks about technology. It's, it's a part of the human experience. And, and that's not to say it's all good. It, it, it can be a severe trial at times. But uh, the real test is to make sure we bring technological technological developments into the service of the human person and, and human flourishing. That's the challenge. It's it's not the either or of, of banning it. Um, and you know you know think about the, the, these places, these former manufacturing powerhouses. We never hear in this critique about the numerous cities and regions in this country that did actually reinvent themselves and become more prosperous. Uh, places to live in on the backside of, you know, quote unquote, globalization. And and they exist in a lot of places. They tend to exist in red states and, and places that were willing to attract capital and allow labor to be moved around. That's that's the thing we don't really hear too much about. But those places exist. And it's it's not the case that every place is Youngstown, Ohio. Yeah. Well, that's right, Richard. I, I, I think across the board, a lot of these topics we've covered today, you and I are, are kindred spirits, and, and I really appreciate your contribution to this current debate, and certainly appreciate you taking the time to come talk to our listeners here on, on Capitol Record. Um, I'll put into the show notes where, where people can find you. I think that uh, Law and Liberty is indispensable in this cause, and um, I, I'd really love to have you back another time on Capitol Record. Thank you, David, for having me so much. This has been excellent. I really appreciate it. You bet. Well, we will leave it there. I really appreciated having Richard on, and I hope you uh, enjoyed it as much as I did. He's a very cogent thinker. I think he's very rightly identified what some of the biggest concern really is on this this debate. Uh, A resentment-driven ideology is no good coming from the right or the left. And I think that there is uh, a lot of bad policy prescriptions coming out of a resentment-driven approach on the right. 
And of course, sometimes it can be with good intentions. Sometimes it can be with prima facie understandable uh, context. But at the end of the day, we have to get the policy right. And philosophically, this deep and abiding invitation to government to come fix that which ails us uh, fails to ail us and ultimately make so many of our problems so much worse. Thank you, Richard, for joining. Thank you, listeners, for being a regular part of National Review's Capital Record. We'll look forward to come back to you next week for a deeper dive discussion about housing, home building, what the problems and challenges are for our leading home builders to get more capital stock built in housing. Next week's going to be a fun one.